Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And David Mann from Refugee Legal has come into Triple R many, many times over the years slash decades uh, to discuss Australia's detention regime for refugees, including offshore detention. And uh, earlier this month, the nine newspapers uh, were reporting that you know, serious, were asking serious questions really about dealings with Pacific neighbours um, and dealings between the Australian Department of Home and Affairs and Pacific neighbours to keep that regime in place. Uh, and the Guardian earlier this month uh, revealed the Morrison government had signed a confidential bilateral agreement with Papua New Guinea, which most people didn't know about. And so there's, look, there's renewed calls now for a royal commission into offshore processing. This is coming from the Greens and supported by independent MPs Ali Stegall. There's lots going on, David, as per usual. It's just good to see you, though. And um, hello, good morning. Yeah, good morning and uh, great to be back in the studio. And look, we've talked a lot over the years about offshore detention and uh, I mean, where are we? Before we get into some of these um, questions being asked in media about what's been going on uh, while the, the offshore detention regime's been in place, where are we at with it? How many people are still yeah. in offshore detention? Yeah, well, where we're, where we're at with it, at, despite the, the, the scandalous nature of the policy, uh, both in terms of the incalculable human cost over two iterations of that policy... Uh, in the last two decades, you know, two periods where we've, you know, essentially exiled people and destroyed them, you know, children, women, men, families with heartbeats, um, we still have the policy in place. That's, I think, the most fundamental issue at the moment is the policy remains in place. Uh, now, where that's at in terms of uh, what, you know, people, uh, Nauru has been cleared... Um, so I'm sure most people would be aware that there was recent news, and of course that's extremely welcome. Um, it's you know it's beyond that really. Um, why it took so long is a big question that still needs to be answered. But in PNG there are still uh, around 80 people uh, who are marooned there in you know impossibly um, you know impossible circumstances where they continue to be destroyed. I mean it's 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 you know and where there is no proper future uh, for them. Australia at this point, with PNG, uh, maintains the position that due to sort of withdrawing from a bilateral agreement that they had with PNG on the arrangements, you know, uh, uh, that uh, as of recently the government's official line was we don't have any policy. How can you have no policy when you had obligations to people who sought protection in Australia, you exiled them there and left them in indefinite detention for years on end, uh, and, and all of the terrible harm and suffering that was caused and then withdraw from that arrangement with a country that cannot provide protection to people and where there's ongoing harm there and say so you have no policy. Um, but that is the actual policy at the moment. So their future, the people there, their future remains very precarious. Probably the best outcome would be for the UNHCR to work with New Zealand on some of those places that New Zealand has put aside. That's right. Yeah. I mean, are they in Manus <coughs> Island Detention Facility, though? Are they in no. the community now, no. in Moresby and places like that? No. Some time ago, uh, everyone who was on Manus was brought to Port Moresby. Yeah. And so they're in Port Moresby, um, but it's just not a safe place. I mean, it, it, you know, I think I think it's pretty obvious, but sadly so. Um, 
you know, PNG, Port Moresby, the whole of PNG is not a resettlement country. It's not a country that pr- can provide, is capable of providing enduring protection to people. Mm. Uh, and so their fate remains unclear. The final point, and I think this is really critical for the future as well, is that the policy remains in place. So even though, let's take Nauru, even though uh, people have been, that, that they've effectively brought people from Nauru back to Australia who were there, uh, and they've left Nauru in place for the future as a contingency. To the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. To the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. So it just sits there as a contingency. In other words, in simple terms, if someone arrives by boat in the future, um, that is the key option, is mm. to, to again exile. Now, I think the critical point here is, as well as that, there is that policy, and, uh, and the current government continues to outline that, with no information at all about bottom lines. That is, how will the inevitable uh, inevitable harm, severe harm and destruction of people be avoided in the future if you continue to do that? And we continue to be at the table with government saying this. What are the bottom lines? It's no good to say, oh, yes, in the future we'll, you know, we'll, we'll somehow it'll be more humane and resettlement to a third country. Yes, that is still the only option, but it'll happen quicker. Sorry, what have you put in place to ensure that? What, well, what are the safeguards yeah. to ensure you mm. avoid that again if you are going to maintain that kind of policy? Especially given mm. what, I mean, you've been sharing with our audiences that we know of through other, through other media reporting and, yeah. and also the, the lived experiences of people who have yeah. shared them very publicly as well, given that history not having anything in place that's clear, it, it, it seems a, a glaring oversight to, to just put it in a very mild way. Uh, it, it, well, it's unconscionable and unacceptable and needs to shift because it's no good uh, for, for any government knowing the evidence of what this policy has done to people uh, and will inevitably do again without any safeguards in place to ensure that uh, people are resettled very quickly to somewhere with you know, where they can, can actually rebuild their lives with safety. I think, I think that present context is really important because the, the revelations reported out of nine newspapers, um, a series of articles over the past kind of week or two, I mean, they raise serious questions about the outsourcing of Australia's offshore detention regime to private companies who then, you know, pass money on to various sort of politicians and, and other companies um, you know, there hasn't been sort of direct allegations of, of corruption, we should say, but there's been certain, you know, certainly big questions raised through that reporting about the integrity of of Australia's offshore detention system. A lot of those questions are being directed to Peter Dutton as the former mm. head of head of Home Affairs. But what what's your response, sort of initially, to, to that reporting and what it says about the way this system has been managed? Well, actually, my my response is to start with uh, is the the incalculable human cost. That is, again, going back to what this has done to thousands of people who sought our protection in Australia directly and who we are duty-bound to protect, having signed up to a convention saying that we'll do that, uh, and as a country that has every capacity to do it and should. Um, a, a, a country that uh, prides itself on you know, a, a history of you know, sort of humanity in response to, you know, sort of people in need. Uh, so um, what we've done is turned our back, as we know, on that. And um, that's actually the, the most important issue. But what also comes with it, and this story is really more focused on the, the financial cost. Uh, and and we all know, uh, and it's it's well known, and I think this is something why I say that is our country needs to confront this, that billions and billions of dollars have been expended 
to, again, to exile uh, several thousand people who we could readily have, have helped and protected here uh, to that kind of inhumanity. And, and, but here it's about, you know, as, you ra- as, as you've raised, it's serious questions, serious integrity questions around the expenditure of that money um, and, uh, and extraordinary allegations uh, that uh, need, and I think this is the fundamental point, that they need to be investigated properly under law, full scrutiny under law. There are various mechanisms that are available. Uh, there, is, there are royal commissions, there are judicial inquiries, there was, there's clearly the, uh, the new Federal um, Integrity Commission. Um, you know, whichever one it is, and there's multiple mechanisms to deal with this, I think the real issue is sometimes there are integrity issues that arise where they really test us as a country and as a community. And I think this is one of them where I think it's reached a point um, where the question is not whether these these allegations, this evidence is to be properly scrutinised under law, but how and when. I think that's... Because if we don't, and I think this is a really... I think it will test our resolve in relation to integrity questions more broadly in our community. It has reached that level. It's one of those issues. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, I also, I suppose, uh, asked the question about who was asking as we went along because a lot of people were asking questions about the expenditure and per person, per head. We had all of these sorts of discussions which, uh, you know, just to keep it on the humanity felt like, you know, horrible way of, of, of talking about the issue at the time. But... Did we scrutinise enough the spending of this money? It seemed like a lot was off limits when the money was being spent over the past decade or more. Oh, I, I think without any doubt, no. I, but I think that that raises another really interesting question, um, or a, couple, a number of questions, actually, but at least um, one of them is going to your point, is that actually, in a broad sense, these issues were, were known for years. Anyone that cared to pay attention to some excellent reporting and and other information coming out over over quite a number of years w- was well aware of the fact that there were serious questions about um, the use of the public monies uh, and contracts and, and the like. Um, now again, they're serious questions that need to be examined. Uh, uh, but this th- this recent reporting, in a way, what I see it as doing is providing some more information probably through whistleblowers, probably through leaks, so some more concrete, hard evidence. But the broad patterns and themes are not new. And Mm. this raises another question. You know, at what point in our country are we going to have the resolve and the resources dedicated uh, and and the will, you know, the the political will to actually seriously scrutinise what happened and, uh, and, and why and who was behind it and what does that tell us about these kinds of um, policies as well and policy making in our country? I think be one, one issue on that that will be fascinating um, will be to look at, uh, at, at chain of command issues. Speaking with David Mann, Executive Director of Refugee Legal, about a range of issues in asylum and refugee policy in this country. And uh, on that, I mean, th- there's a whole lot of, of, of reporting, um, sort of different issues explored as part of the, the Nines um, uh, reporting investigation of this issue. But I'm wondering, sort of from your perspective, someone who's been involved in refugee advocacy for a very, very long time. I mean, one of the, the articles that stood out to me was a, a Nauru doctor who talked about facing a lot of pressure around his... Um, move to have people transferred to Australia for medical care as part of the Medivac sort of legislation. And there's a suggestion that, that perhaps there was 
was pressure on him from various sort of politicians and the like not to do that because they might lose out from having people sent elsewhere. Does that kind of revelation, I suppose, more insight into why decisions might have been made provide more impetus for change than, you know, what's been talked about in terms of the humanitarian cost and the kind of security justification that governments have traditionally made about the need of having an offshore detention system? The evidence is very important to doctors saying essentially that they had um, very clear-cut duties as a doctor, which arise from their, you know, Hippocratic Oath, etc. Mm. you know, their, their basic duty of care, that they were essentially, I guess the allegation goes to the very heart of whether they were able to do that, to, to actually render care. And it, but by no means is, is this the first person that has said that they're essentially put in such a position, um, such a, a difficult position, an impossible position potentially to do that, that they it, it, they had to withdraw or they, or they were forced out. You know, there's many, many doctors that are already in nurses and others that were essentially rendering care at the, you know, at the front line who have given reports like this. And, and I have to say, personally, I've spoken to many um, uh, who have reported exactly this. There was a pattern uh, of this kind of, uh, as part of the policy. The policy paradigm was not to provide care, actually, to care for people. It was actually to deliberately um, inflict suffering. I think we need to look as at it better in the eye. As deterrence, that is mm. deterrence policy, exactly. I think, you know, this is what we need to confront as part of the, the bigger question in any inquiry, is why was this done? Now, the inherent the logic of deterrence policy which has underpinned this is inherently brutal. It is that the more painful the punishment or the penalty, the more effective the policy because you're essentially trying to to make it so painful that uh, you deter others from coming. So exactly. And and this is the outcome of it, uh, inevitable outcome of it, I say. And this is why without any clear bottom lines which are they should be built into law, uh, it'll happen again because that's the nature of the policy. With regards to how the current government's interacting with the Pacific, I mean, we get a lot of reporting there that, you know, senior people in the US administration visiting the Pacific concern around China, relations between X country and Y country and China, and the, this sort of, uh, you know, uh, Foreign Minister Wong has travelled extensively in the region and uh, is rebuilding relationships there in different ways what do you think will come of this change and we you know it's often called you know defense posture and these sorts of things but when it comes to asylum seeker refugee and regional cooperation on these issues are you seeing conversations had in that space David? Not enough Uh, there need to be Uh, one of the uh, some, you know, it's well over a decade ago, well over, was more like you know, a decade and a half ago or even two de- decades ago, there, was, uh, there, there were many attempts to, to uh, seek to develop uh, a comprehensive policy in the region, which was variously called, you know, sort of um, you know, regional, a regional cooperation framework or a regional protection framework. The idea being that, um, in our, in, and when we talk region, we're talking um, Southeast Asia uh, and the Pacific, but the idea that there are millions of people that have been forced to flee from, let's say, the Middle East into our region uh, and that uh, instead of 
what we do have, which is actually a cooperative framework, it's called, I would call it the, uh, the deterrence framework. The, uh, the, uh, so it's the, uh, it's the regional deterrence framework where most countries in the region, in fact pretty much all of them, uh, are, are looking at how do you deter people from coming to your country, uh, that instead that we have a cooperation framework where there'd be fundamentals, uh, you know, which working in cooperation, states look to securing, stabilising the situation of people who flee into their countries, in, so whether it be Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, you know, and, and, and on it goes, but, it, you know, many other countries involved. But looking at wherever someone goes, that they be humanely treated, firstly, they get a fair process to determine whether they need protection as a refugee or otherwise, and then the final point, solutions, you know, how to protect in an enduring sense, whether in that country or through a cooperative framework in another country, uh, but that's the aim, and it's, a, it's, it's fundamental that um, efforts be stepped up to go back to uh, that kind of idea of that kind of framework because without it, what we have... And let's take Australia for a moment. I think that Australia is a really good point. So there is bipartisanship, very strong bipartisanship now, as we know, between the two major parties uh, over border protection. So essentially both parties are strongly committed, it seems, to turning boats back and to offshore processing. But really it's boat turnbacks that are the, probably the, the most effective uh, in, in terms of this sort of border harsh border protection. That's, that is what it is. That's, that's the bipartisanship. But the question must arise, putting aside the violations of rights and the harm that's caused to people in being pushed back into danger and instability. If you're going to do that, what contribution are, you, are we going to make in our region? Because you know, turning back boats doesn't stop people needing protection. You know, Sweeping people from dangers on our doorstep to dangers elsewhere... Um, only compounds the problem. So what contribution are we going to make with regional neighbours to improving protection and minimising harm for millions and millions of people that continue to need it? It's always great to have you on the show, David. Um, there's a lot there we could continue talking about, but we are just about out of time. Um, we'll chat to you again soon, I'm sure. Thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, great to be with you. Triple R. Consulting firm PwC's breach of trust, where it was re- revealed they passed on confidential Australian taxation uh, information to their commercial clients, first came to the attention of many Australians when Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers heard about it earlier this year and got angry. Uh, but some government agencies were aware many years earlier than that, uh, but did not pass the information on to other agencies within government. Judith Brett has written for The Monthly on how Australia's public service has become so entwined and some say captured by the big four consulting firms. Uh, Judith is an emeritus professor of politics at La Trobe University and writes regularly for the monthly. And it's really great to have you there, Judith. Good morning. Good morning. And for those, I think it's... uh, I I like the way that you talk about this issue. So rather than me give a sort of a recap of of how we got here, uh, for those that haven't followed it closely, what is it that PwC has done um, that not only angered the Treasurer but scandalised so many of us, Judith? Well, look, the guts of it is that there was a man called Peter Collins who was part of a confidential group um, that were briefing or being consulted by Joe Hockey and the Treasury when they were trying to, when they were developing legislation to 
um, basically capture more tax from the big global international companies like Google, Google and Apple, who um, because what they were um, characteristically doing was shifting profits made in Australia to other lower tax countries. So they were trying. The, the government was developing legislation to try to to avoid this sort of tax minimisation that was happening. Now Peter Collins, who was a partner at PwC signed confidentiality briefings. Uh, he knew about the way the legislation was being framed through because of these consultations. And then he used that information to to tell to help PwC develop products that they could sell to these companies to help them avoid this legislation that was coming down the track. So basically, he breached confidentiality uh, agreements that he'd signed in order that the company he was a partner in could make more money. And, and that's the guts of it. And I mean, you take a really interesting approach in this essay for the monthly. You highlight that this is both a political story about the um, you know reliance and continued reliance over the years of the Australian Public Service on the big four consulting firms, but also the kind of ethical story that this points towards in terms of a a sort of degradation, I suppose, of character, both in some of these corporations but in government itself. I wonder if you can talk about what it was about character that was kind of playing in your mind as you were mulling over this issue. Yeah, now I don't think it's, it's so it goes to a degradation of character in the government, mm. but it was just like, who are these guys, you know, that somebody could sign a confidentiality agreement and then just blithely break it? You know, like that, where, where was there any sense of a sort of an internal notion of integrity or honesty or probity? These people are dealing with tax, they're, de- they're accountants, you know, they're in the professional middle class, which... Um, uh, where, where character used to be historically very important. So I suppose I approached it with that historical sense. But it was because it wasn't just him. He shared this information with other people, and that's been revealed by emails that um, were had to be sent to the parliament. Um, that many people knew that this was a breach of confidentiality and nobody seemed to worry about it. That's when you read the emails, there's this sort of blitheness about them. Not only did they not worry that um, they're doing something wrong, but they don't seem to think that they might get caught. You know, there's there's a sort of... So I found that quite shocking. Like, I, I, I say, you know, who are these guys? Like, yeah. um, and, and so particularly because this was playing out uh, in the media and I was thinking about it and writing about it at the same time as the robo-debt scandal was being, the report was being um, coming in. Now, here we've had a government pursuing very poor people for very small amounts of money, while in another part of, 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 of the sort of pub, the taxpayer-funded sector, if you like. I mean, well, the, these guys are scooping up vast amounts of taxpayer money and thinking they can get away with it. So there's something, to me, it also speaks to the increased inequality um, that we've seen in Australian society after the la- over the last couple of decades, that these, very, these people are very rich um, who were doing this. You know, they're, they're on uh, six, seven-figure you know, seven incomes in the millions, and that they had so little sense of responsibility for the public good. I suppose that's 
um, that that's you know and that they were using that this was taxpayers' money that they were um, ripping off in a sense because they were trying to help their clients avoid paying tax. And I mean, these, you know, I don't, I personally don't know the individuals involved here, but there is, as you say, there's a sense that to to them, in some ways, it it, it didn't matter the the implications of of their actions. And and look, they have been enormous on on PwC in particular. But there's questions being asked also about uh, other consulting firms and people, are, you know, particularly in Parliament, senators having a close look at it. But what does it tell you about? What matters to us as a society, Judith? Like when you, you know, look at it from that through that character lens, you know, is it something that we can look at other sectors? I mean, you raise, you know, academics, doctors at large hospitals. Like, is there something there that we need to pay attention to? That's a different. The, the, the issue about the academics and doctors was quite different. That that was talk. I was like, there's. It's, a quite, it's a quite a complicated story, but one of the things I was interested in was how did PwC respond? So it responded by saying, well, we'll, we'll just increase um, the compliance measures and we'll get people to do an online um, module on confidentiality. You know, as if people don't know what lying is, as if um, getting them to fill in something which says when you sign something that's confidential, does that mean you can tell it to everybody, can only tell it to your partner? You know, like it just seemed a bit sort of bizarre. So I guess um, that was one thing. One of the other points that that you you used in introducing it was the way the government has increasingly relied on consultants. And I think that's another thing that comes out. I mean, the consultants... that. There's two issues. One is the fact that these consultants were not acting with integrity. We have to realise these are for-profit organisations who are being asked to contribute to the public good. Um, And somebody, one of the defenders, said, well, you know, what had happened is we'd put profit before purpose. But the point is that the purpose of these organisations is to make a profit. It's not to serve the public good. Whereas the public service has an explicit purpose. It's there to serve the public, not to make a profit. So as governments have increasingly relied on on consultancies, it's had... um, what's often been described as a hollowing out effect on the public service. Firstly, it's meant that there's been fewer public servants employed because some of the key tasks that they used to do are being outsourced to consultants. But the consultants don't have, aren't sort of, it's not their primary purpose to serve the public, whereas that is the primary purpose of the public service. But also the public service loses skills and institutional memory as things are offloaded or outsourced to consultants. So there's a... And I think it's good, you know, with the change of government, Labor has recognised this as a problem and has said that they want to rebuild the skills and the expertise of the public public service. Speaking with Judith Brett, Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University, all about her essay for the brand-new edition of The Monthly, looking at the scandal involving particularly PricewaterhouseCoopers, but also um, involving, I suppose, the, the continued use of... 
big four consulting firms by the Australian Public Service. And, I mean, on that, Judith, you know, you mentioned that there's been some in train, some training around conflict of interest and that sort of thing. There's been, um, you know, PwC has spun off its Australian government consulting firm to Allegro Funds and, um, you know, there's continued pressure, I suppose, from some very dogged parliamentarians on this issue. So there has, I suppose, been some fallout and, and as you know, oh, yes, Labor has... Oh, a lot of fallout. Th- that's right. And I suppose in terms of the broader issue that you're highlighting here in the implications of relying so much on these big private companies to deliver reports and, and advice and the like on things that really need to benefit society, not just deliver big profits. Do you see that there is a real appetite for substantial change on this? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think, in a way, this this got the reliance on public servants got much worse under the coalition government over the last decade or so. So the reliance on consultancies, sorry, um, got much worse because, and it's part of the sort of neoliberal economic agenda. But if we just focus in on the coalition, the coalition has. Um, a belief, you know, has a bit of a suspicion of the public service. It's got, you know, it has, it's in government, but it tends to think that the private sector will do things better than, than the government will, um, that the public sector will. So, so the outsourcing has had a sort of an ideological foundation in many ways under the coalition. And I don't, Labor has a, a more faith in the public sector. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons that since the election we're seeing a shift back. But this has been now uh, sped up massively by the emergence of this scandal, which hasn't been pushed um, by politicians or by political parties. It came out through a journalist, um, mm. Neil Chenoweth, with the Australian Financial Review. He's the one who broke the story. And once the story's broken, you know, that's when... That was the first that Chalmers, the Treasurer, knew that there'd been someone who'd breached confidentiality agreements that had been signed with the Treasury. Now, the reason um, that it took so long for the government has to do with the way the tax office, which did know about that, is actually believed itself to be limited by secrecy um, provisions in the legislation about sharing information. I found that so, just, I mean, it's, that's one part of this story and I've read bits and pieces of it um, over, over months and that's one part I hadn't picked up, Judith, until I read your essay was that that one arm of government, um, the tax office, felt it couldn't tell another arm of government, Treasury, about their concerns. Is that something that that you get a sense that this government will start to look at what provisions are there to prevent information, very important information, passing from one part of government to another? Uh, look, I think that this is a bit of a one-off. Like tax, the tax office has privacy information, secrecy information for very good reason in order so that people can... Um, you know, that it can gather information about people's private uh, financial affairs and not pass that on, right? Whereas this was actually something... It wasn't about Peter Collins' own tax arrangements. Mm. It was about him breaching confidentiality agreement. But the tax office felt that the secrecy provisions still applied to it. Now, so I don't think it affects the whole of government. I think it's got to do with the particular way in which 
privacy and secrecy in, um, legislation binds the tax office. And this is in a way a bit of an anomaly because it's not, the tax office came to this knowledge, but it's not actually about tax, it's about something else. Yeah, it's a fascinating and you know, interesting story and um, really appreciated your analysis on it um, in particular, Judith. So thanks so much and, um, and thanks for joining us this morning on Triple R. Thank you for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. And we are privileged today to have on Triple R Indonesian lawyer and human rights activist Turung Mulia Lubis. And a bit about Turung because it's important context to the book he's written called War and Corruption and Indonesian Experience. Uh, Turung is a founding and senior partner of a prominent law firm in Jakarta and has been lead counsel in a number of major human rights cases, including acting for the Bali Nine. Uh, he's an honorary professor at the Melbourne Law School and ambassador of Indonesia to the Kingdom of Norway and the Republic of Iceland and he's held many prominent and important positions including Deputy Chair of the Human Rights Investigation Commission for East Timor and a member of Asian Human Rights Commission in Hong Kong and he's also served as Chair of the Indonesian Crisis Group International Foundation and also Chairperson of the Indonesian Corruption Watch Ethical Council and uh, Tudung's involvement in activism and um, uh, issues around human rights and corruption uh, date back to the 70s and 80s where he was director of Indonesia's famous dissident NGO called the Legal Aid Foundation and we are so pleased to have uh, him with us today to discuss the book as I mentioned War and Corruption in Indonesian Experience and welcome to Triple R Tudung. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Well, thank you uh, for having me. And, um, and congratulations on it. I mean, I've just gone through so many things that you've done and the huge contributions you've 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 made uh, on issues, particularly around corruption in Indonesia. And we could talk about that all day, but let's start with your book. Why did you want to publish a book on corruption in Indonesia now? Well, I started my anti-corruption uh, activity back when I was student in 1970s early 70s. I, I led a protest uh, against the construction of Taman Miniatur Indonesia Indah, a monument yeah, uh, sponsored by the former first lady, the late first lady, yeah, the wife of President Suharto at the time, because I thought it was not the right time to do that. And the budget we had at the moment was not enough. So what we had at the time probably best use if we could have built up bridges or could, could have increased the salaries of the teachers, something like that. And so that was the first uh, protest movement that I led. And after that, I've been involved in so many corruption cases, small one, of course, because I was a lawyer at the Indonesian Legal Aid Foundation in Indonesia. So uh, I was not talking about big corruption. I was talking about mostly petty corruption at the time. So I, I, my impression was, wow, the corruption is, is so entrenched, you know, has been there for a long time. It's not a new phenomenon. It's a, it has been there for a long, long time. Yeah? Now, I, I, I realized later on that, well, petty corruption is not really a big problem for us here. Yeah? Uh, it's been... It's, I'm not saying that I, I condone that, but if people don't have sufficient salaries 
then they have to to find something to uh, continue their life. The problem that I uh, have very much concern is what you call grand corruption, corruption to enrich themselves illegally. And later on, it became what we call state capture corruption, where state is being used to accumulate funds yeah, illegally to enrich not only himself, but the groups or the parties or yeah, as corporations. So that is something that's bothering us a lot in Indonesia. Yeah. And probably this one of the reasons why I published this book. And I mean, the, the book is so interesting. It outlines how, you know, corruption in some cases emerges from a sort of cultural practice of gift giving and, and how, you know, that can lead to, you know, maybe the misappropriation of funds or, or potentially um, political leaders or those in positions of power doing things that might benefit certain people. But then there's the more systemic and, I suppose, nefarious forms of corruption, which have very significant public implications as well. I wonder if you can sort of talk about what happens throughout Suharto's reign in Indonesia in particular and the way that corruption becomes, I suppose, very important to his grip on power. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the way to maintain the power at the time, to secure loyalty of his subordinates. So the room was really provided for those subordinates to enrich themselves, you know, because the state did not really pay sufficient salaries. If you compare what they receive, you know, like what they receive in Singapore or Malaysia, so... Suharto intensely opened the room for them to do that. But that was expanded uh, to so many fields. And when you talk about business at the time, there's no one can enter into business without uh, having partners from the inner circle of the authority of the powers. Not only having a local partners, yeah, but at the same time paying bribes, you know, Paying, uh, yeah, what you call, uh, it's not a token, yeah, it's a big amount, yeah, sometimes a free, free shares, yeah, to be given to the local partners. So, uh, this is the things that I guess, you know, being, uh, copy paste at the local level, you know, when you talk about the local business at the provincial or agency level. So, that was going on. So, corruption became very systemic, very endemic and very widespread. And uh, we still have that, yeah, even now, although we have a better law enforcement mechanism if you compare it, if you compare it with uh, the past, you know, and the Suharto regime. Now, are we succeeded in fighting corruption? Well, I can say yes and no, yeah. To some extent, yeah, we have all the institutions set up, corruption eradication commissions. We have a uh, attorney general office, of course, the police, the state audit agency, and there are a few others, including the constitutional court, including also the judicial commission. But at the same time, we have quite free media and civil society. Yeah, so that that's provide. A complete a check and balance actually is it really working well 
to my knowledge, we, we should be better than this. Yeah, we should we should uh, be more uh, probably uh, active yeah, in fighting corruption. Yeah? We should not go back to the old days where corruption is so widespread. Yeah, and you've been a, a champion for addressing corruption issues and and some of these agencies that are there now to start to contend with it in Indonesia. What has kept you going? Um, because, I mean, you're, as you sort of just detailed to us, your involvement has been right back to the 70s and in a very difficult era, the Sahatu um, regime uh, came to an end in 1998. What, what's, what brought you back to Indonesia from your, your trips ab- abroad and so forth to start to tackle this issue? What what kept you going there, um, Tudung? Well, as I said earlier, this is a very uh, systemic, endemic yeah, and widespread issues, you know, as far as corruption is concerned. And there's no way we can alleviate poverty if corruption is still wide, being widespread, you know, like what we have at the moment. So, uh, Indonesia, of course, is not any more a poor country. We are we have been uh, yeah uplifted yeah, to what you call middle income country. But still, considering how much we have, you know, from natural resources, how rich the country is, I think the people deserve more. People deserve more, and uh, corruption is still yeah publicized in our media every day. And it, in fact, in the last five years, my take is corruption has getting worse and worse. And the Corruption Eradication Commission has been weakened when the new revision of law on Corruption Eradication Commission passed by the parliaments. That was, you know, uh, yeah, five years ago, around five years ago. So Indonesian Corruption Commission has not as powerful as it used to. Because in the past, before it was before the law on anti-corruption commission uh, was revised, the the commission itself was considered super body, very powerful, very clean, very systemic, very aggressive, and never in our history were so many ministers, parliamentarians, governors, regents, heads, yeah, mayors, courts, and sent to jail by the Corruption Eradication Commission for corruption. So that was not any longer, yeah, mm. in the last five years. Yeah. So uh, that was very, very, uh, yeah, uh, concerning, very alarming for us because corruption is coming back. Yeah. We're speaking with lawyer and human rights activist Todung Mudia Lubis all about his new book, War on Corruption and Indonesian Experience. And I mean, on that, Todung, I remember being in Jakarta around about 10 or 11 years ago when Joko Widodo was, um, you know, his political rise was very much happening around that time. And there was a great deal of enthusiasm about his pledge and efforts to address corruption, especially in things like the construction industry. And um, I'm sort of wondering, given that that has been a very prominent platform for him, what have been the impediments to addressing corruption and I suppose even, you know, leading to corruption becoming worse in recent years, as you just outlined? Well, uh, I tell you what, uh, political uh, contestation or election is one what I consider yeah, 
very high cost business in Indonesia. So those who are running for public office, those who are running for uh, parliament membership, they have to pay a lot. They have to have a lot of money to be able to run. So how how the money can be yeah, accumulated? Yeah, that is an issue for all of them. So at the local level, you're talking about the same things. Yeah? If you run for governors, if you run, if you run for the local parliament's uh, position, then you have to have a lot of money. Now, in this case, in this kind of in this circumstances, they colluded. They got all the funds yeah, from the big business people, from donors, yeah, and then they have to repay back. How do they repay back? They repay that by giving licenses, by giving permits, by giving procurement projects, and on and on. And they, at the same time, have to accumulate funds for their next election, supposedly, yeah, they will uh, run again, yeah, for the next election. So this is this kind of vicious circle in Indonesia, where corrupt breeds corruption, corruption breeds corruption every time, and when you have a weakened anti-corruption commission, then corruption can become very, uh, yeah, easy for those who have all the means and resources, for those who have powers, yeah. especially when you don't really have yeah, a strong public yeah, or social control upon the governments. Yeah. Is there a number of... Uh, oh, sorry to cut across you there, um, Turung. Is, is there a sense that any of the the political parties that will run for the next election, which is what next, next February now, in Indonesia will strengthen the Corruption Eradication Commission? Because as you mentioned earlier on Indonesian news, that there's a lot of news about what the, the Corruption Eradication Commission is, is doing. Uh, is there, uh, are you optimistic that any of the parties running might strengthen that commission again? Well, on paper, we can read that in media every time that they're all committed to fight corruption. I suppose, yeah, they will not say otherwise. But the fact of the matter is, you have ministers yeah, caught by uh, attorney general office for corruption, and now uh, being investigated, being prosecuted. You have also yeah, a number of high-ranking officials and even coordinating ministers for the economy is being called by the attorney generals for alleged corruption. So that is the things that, yeah, mm. people have yeah, probably questioned. Yeah? Why, under this kind of circumstances, 20 years more after the reformacy back in 1998, we're still having this, this kind of problem. We're still doing this. No? If you see the Corruption Perception Index published by Transparency International, yeah, our index, our score is lower than what uh, we we used to have uh, before. You know, now the index of corruption, uh, the score of index uh, corruption perception index of Indonesia is thirty four. We used to be forty forty, yeah, mm. uh, two three years ago, but now it's getting down and down. Yeah, so that's really alarming. 
absolutely. And um, we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask you, Turung, about the role of Australia here. I mean, you're an honorary um, professor at Melbourne Law School. And, you know, here in Australia, we have a recently established National Anti-Corruption Commission as well, either in terms of the sort of relationship between Australia and Indonesia or some of the, the issues with corruption that you have outlined in this book. I mean, are there any kind of lessons for Australia or roles for Australia in the bigger picture in addressing corruption in Indonesia? Well, corruption is not really that systemic and widespread in Australia. And in addition to that, your uh, law enforcement agency have been very efficient, very effective, and uh, this tradition of rule of law is there. What lacking in Indonesia is a strong rule of law ideology. So law still can be abused or misused by those who stay in power. So uh, in Australia, there's no way they can do it. Yeah? So uh, what lesson uh, Australia can learn from Indonesia? Well, I guess, you know, the question should be the other way around, you know. Indonesia should learn more from Australia in enforcing the law, in strengthening the ideology of rule of law. So uh, we still have a long way to go. I'm not saying that I'm giving up, but again, we have to empower the people to become more and more outspoken in criticizing corruption in Indonesia. Tudung, it's been wonderful to have you on Triple R this morning and congratulations on the book and uh, and we'll let people know how they can get their hands on it. But we just wanted to thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you for having me. Triple R. The Paris End is a new online magazine exploring the many facets of Melbourne arts and culture and other happenings around town. It's uh, published weekly, offering a mix of commentary, long-form journalism and widely opinionated reviews of the latest fashion, booze and dining trends and lots of other stuff. To tell us more, I'm joined by one of the founders, writer and editor Cameron Schwartz. Welcome. Hi, Dylan. How are you? I got your name wrong. Cameron Hurst is your name. I wish I was a Schwartz, but unfortunately not. <laughs> is it Schwartz is the name of one of your other yes, founders? Yes, um, the other co-founders are Sally Olds and Oscar Schwartz, and I am Cameron Hurst. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, tell us how this all came about. Um, well, we have a little Substack publication. So it's a weekly email newsletter that Sally, Oscar and I put out. And it came about just because basically we all became friends. We really admired each other's work. We started chatting about what we really wanted to read and what we wanted to write ourselves. And we felt that we wanted to publish some more long form writing about Melbourne arts and culture. And really, I guess we had this idea of reviving reportage, this idea of being out on the streets and talking to people and writing these long-form pieces that were trying to capture the spirit of Melbourne and thus the Paris End was born. Yeah, and so what did you feel like was lacking in the current offerings of Melbourne's sort of journalism, arts and culture scene? I think we felt that there was... There's really great publications in Melbourne and there's a really great history of journalism in this city, but a lot of uh, the way that the media landscape has worked out at the moment is that it's really expensive and time-consuming to publish long-form journalism. Um, it's a lot more profitable and manageable to publish really short-form things and it's easier, to, I guess, to get caught up in PR faff and just 
have thousands of emails coming into your inbox as a journal and if you're being forced to churn out three or four stories a day, you don't really have the time to be kind of having long conversations with people and writing those longer, more in-depth pieces. And also I guess we were interested in writing things about uh, people around us that are a bit younger and more, I guess, youth culture, (laughs) but people that we didn't feel like were being written about in the kind of mainstream media. Um, So, yeah, I guess just reflecting the world around us and the people that we were interested in and allowing ourselves time to work on pieces slowly and working collaboration with each other very closely. Yeah, it's such a brilliant idea. And, I mean, as you say, a big part of the challenges facing journalists and writers is time. Um, So this is quite an ambitious thing to launch as well. How have you sort of gone about creating something you feel like is manageable for all of you who sort of do other things um, and still delivers on all those aspects of the magazine that you really want it to be? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think we were all a bit, we're all working about, you know, we're all living in a precarious freelance, bohemian layabout lifestyle. We're all working like three to five jobs at all times. Um, And I think we wanted to make it slow enough that it was manageable to really spend time crafting things, but then also regular enough that you have the kind of pressure of a deadline and you have that, yeah, I guess, time constraint where you're forced to churn stuff out in a good way so the way we managed it is every second week we have a longer column which is when one of us will write a long form column but then the in-between weeks as a kind of personal holiday we have this thing called the stars where we do very short uh, reviews of things from five stars to one star (laughs) (laughs) which is a completely arbitrary ranking system which is why it's fun to do Um, and I think it just gives us it's a good balance of time like really it's putting out one thing a week where we all have time to work on it consistently together and then we can balance that with our various freelance contracts like writing for other magazines or working at universities it works. It's working so far. Yeah. I don't want to curse us, Dylan, but it's happening. And, and you had your official launch in the past week. I mean, it's been running for some months now, but how did that all go for you, sort of officially putting it out into the world and having a big party? Um, it was very fun. We, so we soft-launched the Paris End in February, and we, we just kind of started it, and we say, let's see how this goes, and it gave us a bit of time to get into our stride and I think figure out the format that we were working with and understand the tone and what we wanted to achieve. And then we thought we should have a party, a launch party. Um, so we had a party on Thursday night at Chapter House in the city. Uh, it sold out in 24 hours, which was wow. crazy. Turns out people love emails about <laughs> Melbourne. <laughs> um, so Sally and Oscar and I are all nerdy writers, so we were a bit out of our comfort zone throwing a soiree, but we did it. We got, yeah. we got a delicious wheel of cheese. We had speeches. We had an MC. We had a performance on a great uh, baby grand and it was very fun. All the stuff you need to make a party good. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, I mean, what has been the audience response so far from the newsletter? I think it was, it's been really interesting because initially it was mainly just our friends and family um, and people that we knew that were interested in reading things because they knew us personally and they were interested in reading about I don't know, artists that they liked or bars that they were going to. But then on Thursday or on Wednesday, sorry, The Age published a profile about the Paris End and that um, brought in some new subscribers that were not people that we personally knew. Mm. And it was really interesting to see people message us about why they were subscribing and what they were interested in. Basically, people really want to hear about Melbourne culture and they really want to support independent journalism. And it was really kind of heartwarming and moving to see so many people invested in that and it's kind of like triple r i guess people really want to 
feel connected to the city that we're in and support people doing independent culture activities. So nothing but good vibes. Totally. And and also written in a way that feels authentic and feels very Melbourne as well, which I think is really impressive in how you've managed to to capture that. Um, I mean, I was sort of having a look through it and there's a really great long form piece you published a, a little while ago, I think a couple of months ago, all about the saga involving the tote, whose you know future was, has been at risk, and there's been a lot of talk about um, you know a fundraising effort from the people behind Last Chance Rock and Roll Bar, and a lot of uncertainty about you know what the future of that venue might mean and, and what it means to us as a kind of music and, and culture city. But you know you spoke to a whole range of people for that. You wrote it in a really engaging style um, and managed to capture the some nuance and, and sort of uncertainties of, of shifting kind of cultural places for us as a city as well. So how do you go about doing all that stuff like the, the the journalistic stuff is time consuming doing the interviews but then writing it in a way that's engaging as well I mean what's your actual sort of process for putting it all together um thanks for reading I think my process is it's incredibly time consuming and I kind of want to stab my eyes out when I'm doing the actual writing <laughs> process but my aim by the end of a piece like that is that I really want to speak to heaps of different people capture really kind of conflicting and different positions on a story and then make it really fun to read and have a kind of cheekiness. I think the Paris End is all about cheekiness. We don't want kind of dour, ponderous, sad, long-form journalism. We want to capture lots of different perspectives but in a really engaging way. When I wrote that piece, yeah, I was really interested in it because I guess I used to go to the Tote um, when I first moved to Melbourne. I'm from Perth. I went there all the time when I was... 18, 19, in my early 20s. Um, And then it kind of just um, dropped off for me personally because also there was this kind of rise of electronic music. People started going clubbing a lot more, but also just there weren't that many gigs there that I wanted to go to. And then I was hearing all the stories about the fundraiser and what was going on, but I kind of was kept on hearing jokes that, like, didn't we already save the tote? Why do we have to do this again? But I was like, I think it's a really interesting story and I want to just chat to all the people involved in it and figure out what's going on here. And I think it is one of those things where if you're on social media all the time, it can feel like there is one narrative or you know what's going on, but actually you don't really know what's going on just from looking at Instagram. And if you really start talking to people, you find that they know funny, weird anecdotes or they have kind of complex feelings about, an event or a set of events that are unfolding and it can be really great to just talk to them and tease out those complexities, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Speaking with Cameron Hurst, the founder and co-editor of a new publication called The Paris End. Um, it's a new sort of, what do you call it, a newsletter, magazine? Yeah, What's I the official the, title? I, I wish it was a publication. I feel like that's maybe ambitious. I would call it an email <laughs> newsletter on Email Substack. newsletter. Okay, yeah. let's go with that. <laughs> um, and what about other sort of writers and, and people who are involved? I mean, do you have any ideas or or goals around other people you you want to work with and and commission you know people to write pieces and that sort of stuff we have had discussions about that but at the moment we're really sticking with just Sally Oscar and I because I think just going back to what we're talking about about making the workload manageable and having that really simple model I think that because we're so busy and this is kind of our side hustle I guess it's much more manageable for us to just work very closely together at this point definitely in the future it's an option it's not something we'd rule out but yeah I think we're happy to just be working in a trio at the moment a thruple per se (laughs) (laughs) and I'm interested in in what each of the three of you bring to a venture like this as well because you've got sort of a background in art history but done sort of other stuff as well where do you see each other's kind of talents I suppose and interests playing a role 
Yeah, I mean, I love Sally and Oscar's writing um, and I was a really big fan of both of their work before I we started working together. Sally has written this book called People Who Lunch, which is a collection of essays about, I guess, similar themes that we would talk about on the Paris end. Like she's got an amazing essay on cryptocurrency. She's got an amazing essay about um, non-monogamy and about the history of the nightclub hugs and kisses. Um, so I think Sally's skill set is that she's got a real she's just an amazing writer she's a really really great writer and she's really great at having this kind of personal position on really interesting issues of our time and then Oscar did a PhD in I could be getting this wrong but I'm pretty sure it was in poetry and technology and he used to write a lot about AI and tech stuff and he's a more like I would say they're both more lit nerd people and I'm an art history nerd um but then Oscar's been working as a freelance journalist publishing in like places like The Drift or like The Economist and just kind of fully working as a freelance writer. And so I think we all bring different things to the table in terms of our experience, but the shared thing that we have is that we have a shared enthusiasm for a particular kind of 20th century journalism and kind of old school journal writing. And also I think we just like collaborating. I don't think we wanted to be out there on our own. I think having this shared kind of protective veneer of the Paris and an ability to work closely and trust each other is what's really important to the project. Yeah, and it's exciting to be, I suppose drawing from some of those inspirations in in what many might consider an older form of journalism in sort of the heyday where people could spend a long time writing an article um, and there were sort of more stable funding models for that sort of work as well, which is, has not been the case. It's been a, there's been a lot of challenges for kind of new startups in the online journalism, online media space as well. Um, I mean, you've, you've you kind of d- distribute the newsletter through Substack, so you've got kind of a subscription model. Talk us through how that works and, and what people, I suppose, get for supporting the the, um, the the newsletter? Yeah, um, so everyone that subscribes, basically if you haven't been on Substack, it's a website where people can publish their own stuff and then there's a subscription model. So our Substack, we publish one thing every week, which just on a side note, I feel like there's also a relief to only having to read one thing a week. Sometimes <laughs> having, you don't need 50 things a day, you just want one good thing a week. Um, so we publish one thing a week every Second week, it'll be a dispatch, which is a long-form column from Sally, Oscar and I. And then the alternating weeks are the stars, which is the five-to-one ranked ephemera. Um, And you pay $5 a month and you'll get the emails in your inbox or it's $50 for a year or you can become a founding member and make history for $100. Um, So, you know, it's a good deal. It's a long black (laughs) for some uh, prime quality long-form Melbourne journalism. (laughs) Absolutely. And um, what are you working on at the moment? Any sneak peeks of what's to come? Ooh, I don't know what... um, I haven't got my column coming up because I just finished one writing about this really interesting fashion label called All is a Gentle Spring. But I know Oscar is writing a column about dexamphetamine use in Melbourne and... Uh, recent research that's been published about Dexies and the kind of role that Dexies play in Melbourne's cultural life. So that I'm very much looking forward to reading. Fascinating. It's a a terrific venture and, you know, hugely ambitious, but the quality really stacks up um, and I can sort of see why people have been so receptive to it as well. So congrats on having had your official launch party over the past week and um, best of luck with everything going forward. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. 
Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.